Good evening, everybody. It's a joy to see you here tonight, um, and it's great to be back to have our time of prayer together once again as a church. If you please grab your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 tonight, and uh, after a short time of review, because it's been a while, we are going to uh, look at verses 1 through 3 and uh, verses 21 through 24 of Luke chapter 10, and we're going to consider tonight the priority of prayer when it comes to the task of expanding evangelism, expanding evangelism. But before we do any of that, let's go ahead and just ask the Lord uh, to bless our time in his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this chance that we have uh, tonight, Father, to worship you in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to gather together as a church here in this place and to approach your throne of grace. Uh, Father, we recognize as the prayer list that we're about to look at reflects that we are weak and we are needy and we are but dust. But Father, you are the all-sufficient one, the one who supplies all of our needs who bears all of our burdens, uh, the one in whom we can cast all of our cares upon because you care for us. And so, Father, I just pray that you would equip us for the moment of prayer, the moments of prayer, as we turn to your word and seek to know more about you from the truth that you've revealed to us. Pray that you would guide us by your spirit on level ground tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so first, since it's been like forever, I want to remind you uh, of what we're doing during our times of prayer here on Wednesday nights. We are going through a study entitled Principles on Prayer from the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. The motivation behind this study all comes from our key verse That's found in Luke 11, verse 1, where the disciples asked Jesus this request, Lord, teach us to pray. And what we learn from that passage is that all of us, all of us have a great need regarding prayer. That need is to become people that pray, people of prayer. And all of us have a great solution to that great need, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the one who has blazed the trail before us. He is the one who has left us an example that we might follow in his steps. And so if we want to be taught how to pray, we ought to learn, first and foremost, from Jesus himself. And Luke's is the perfect book to do that from. It's a gospel account of Jesus' life that's organized according to major themes and reoccurring topics, and prayer is one of those themes. Uh, The Gospel of Luke contains nearly three-fourths of all Jesus' teachings on prayer, and nearly half of them are unique to this book. So this Gospel is basically begging us, do you want to be taught how to pray from Jesus himself? Then study me, I was made for this, okay? So that's the reason behind the title of Principles on Prayer from the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And again, we are organizing the study somewhat like as if you had picked up a book. So you pick up a book, and you look at the title on the cover, Principles on Prayer from the Life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. You crack open that book, and you notice in the table of contents that the book is divided up into six sections. Six sections that will teach us principles on prayer from the arrival 
the lifestyle, the ministry, the mentoring, the passion, and the ascension of Jesus. Each of these aspects of Jesus' life teach us very important lessons on prayer. And then the first three months of our study, we worked through the first three uh, sections of our book on prayer. And then on the very last week, we met together last year, before, or right when about October transitioned into November, we had just started section number four, which is lessons on prayer for the mentoring of Jesus. This is actually going to be one of the largest sections uh, in our study since Jesus talked most about prayer when he was discipling uh, his 12 chosen apostles personally, largely out from under the hearing of the unsaved crowds. Well, last time we were together, I'm sure you remember it, (laughs) we looked at Chapter 1 of section 4, which was the priority of prayer in enduring trials. Taken from Luke 8, 22 through 25, when Jesus sent his followers into the middle of a storm, and then he instantly stilled it to expose their need for faith. Prayer must be a priority if we are to endure trials properly. Prayer must be our first reaction, not our last resort. That's what the disciples learned through that trial. Uh, Prayer must be our first reaction, not our last resort. Well, that brings us to chapter 2 of section 4, which is the priority of prayer in expanding... That is not correct. There we go. In expanding evangelism. After God saves us, if you looked around, he didn't instantly teleport you into heaven, right? (laughs) He kept you here on earth to live in this world and to live among those who do not know him in order that we might be used by God to draw them to Jesus Christ. Uh, Well, we're going to see from the Gospel of Luke that prayer is a crucial element in carrying out that great commission. Prayer must be a priority if we are to be part of an expanding evangelism here in this place. And so we're going to see this first in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 3 where we learn that prayer must be a priority in our desire to expand evangelism. Why? Because God is sovereign in sending. How shall they hear unless someone what? Sends them, right? Someone must go and preach. Well, God is sovereign in that sending, and that is why prayer must be a priority. We're going to see this in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 1 where we see this recorded by Luke in verse 1 of Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So here we see Christ's expanding commission to his followers. Uh, See, Jesus' saving mission began with just himself. Uh, As he proclaimed to his hometown of Capernaum back in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 19, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when it all began, God entrusted the mission and message of salvation first to his son, Jesus Christ. But what's interesting is when you study the Gospel of Luke then, all of a sudden, most unexpectedly, Jesus draws his 12 disciples into that same saving mission, telling them back in chapter 9, verse 2, that now you must go and proclaim the kingdom of God. The mission that I have, Jesus tells his 12 apostles, I'm now entrusting to you. Well, lest the disciples view themselves as 
superior because of that appointment that they received from Christ, which they did if you study Luke chapter 9. Um, Jesus goes ahead here and he expands his saving mission beyond just the 12. And we see here from this verse that he commissioned 72 others to go ahead of him into the towns and villages and to proclaim, as verse 9 and verse 11 of this chapter is going to say later, to proclaim that the kingdom of God is near. So I want you to see here that Jesus' commission is expanding. It is steadily increasing until it finally is entrusted to all of those who follow him, to us. When Jesus says mere moments before his ascension, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation as the Father has sent me, he says in John, so now I send you. Now, there's something that we ought to learn from this, from this slow expansion of Christ's mission to all, and that is this. Jesus does not just throw his commission and his saving mission over to anyone haphazardly. The saving mission of Christ expanded, you see in the Gospel of Luke, very slowly and was sovereignly entrusted very carefully to only a select few at a time. So often we picture the Great Commission the opposite way, don't we? If we're to be honest with ourselves, we think, oh, the Great Commission. Well, that's given to everyone, so it's no big deal, right? Otherwise, God would have reserved that for the really important, capable people, right? He would have given it to a select few, but but the Great Commission is a big deal. And we see that because the commission began with just a few. At the very beginning, Jesus only entrusted the saving mission to himself. And then he carefully entrusted it to 12 chosen men under close oversight for three and a half years. And then only after a period of time did he entrust it to 72 other appointed men. And now he has carefully entrusted that same saving mission believer to you. See, God did not lower Christ's mission to our level. He has exalted you to its level. Through his death on the cross, Christ has exalted us to the point of joining him on his own redemptive mission. It is an honor, believer, to be counted among the 72 on this mission. It is an honor, believer, to be counted among the 12. And it is an honor to be counted with Christ on this, his very own mission. Christ's saving mission has not been brought down to us. In Christ, you have been exalted up to it. That's a glory that we should be called to. The Great Commission is not something we have to do. The Great Commission is something we get to do by his grace that is ours in Christ, that we should be appointed into service. Even that these very verses should be applicable to us is a glory. That we should be sent as ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us, as 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says. That's why Paul said, man, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We have a divine calling. And so I want you to see, before I go on to anything else in this passage, the great commission has not been lowered to our level we have been exalted to us up to it into the very ministry of christ himself he has sovereignly appointed to us to this mission and in the next two verses we're going to see how jesus sovereignly sends those whom he appoints if you're saved you are appointed to this mission 
where Christians start dividing is how many people are actually going and being sent, even though they've been appointed to that. And we see how Jesus begins to work in the hearts of his people to actually send them out to do what he's appointed them to do. Um, And he does it in two ways. First, he sovereignly sends those he appoints by causing them to realize the truth. And then secondly, he sends out those whom he has appointed by causing them to respond to it. So first, he causes them to realize the truth. Look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Jesus is saying the harvest, the ministry potential is enormous. But the laborers, the ones who are out there doing the harvest, are very, very few. This is not, by the way, the first time that Jesus has said this. Back when Jesus first commissioned the twelve, he said the exact same thing in Matthew 9.37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This was a reality that Jesus never, ever got over. This is the realization that God uses to send people into the ministry, to send them out and to do what they've been appointed to do. It's the realization that there are so many people to reach. There are so few people going out to reach them. It's the realization that people today are dying in their sins and going to hell all around you. It's the realization that Jesus gives in in Luke chapter 13, that everyone that you have ever met, if they do not repent, they will likewise perish. These are the realizations that drive, that God uses to sovereignly send out those whom he has appointed, to send out all believers into the work of his harvest fields. This is the realization that God used to sovereignly send me into the ministry, and it's the reality that God still uses today. This is how any evangelism, any ministry, and any true work of God begins. It's by realizing the staggering truth that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I just want you to ask yourself the question tonight, do you believe that is true for West Liberty, Ohio. Because it is true. We need to hold on to this promise by faith and realize that we are in the middle of a white harvest field. We need to go out and tell people about Christ. Because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. That's what Christ knew, and that's the truth that Christ wanted them to realize. So Jesus sovereignly sends those who appoints, uh, whom he appoints by causing his people to realize the truth. And then secondly, he sovereignly sends them out by causing them to respond to that truth that they come to realize. Oh man, <laughs> realizing the truth is not all you need. You actually need to respond to it. How many people have heard God's word applied directly to themselves, felt the conviction, knew they needed to do something about it, and just let it lie right where it was? Therefore, in other words, what are we to do about this reality that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few? Two things. Pray and go. That's how you respond to the truth. That the 
harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You must pray and you must go. Pray and go, pray and go. He says, therefore, pray earnestly to, that is to beg or plead with the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So I want you to picture it in your mind. Jesus gives that commission, those 72 individuals, they break up into pairs. And as those 36 pairs of disciples would have broken off into different directions, you would have seen them stop suddenly to pray, go a little bit further, and then stop to pray again. You would have seen these believers everywhere they were going, praying, going, going, and praying, burdened over their need to have God work. So here they were, vastly outnumbered. Think about what Jesus has just told them to do. 72 individuals. Go and tell the entire nation of Israel who I am and why I've come, that the kingdom of God is here. 72 individuals. I want you to reach the entire nation for me. 72 individuals to reach the entire nation in front of them. And not only that, but it was not a nation that was very open to their message that the kingdom of God was there. Jesus says, I want you to go, and I'm sending you out, by the way, and you want to know what you're like? You're like lambs in the midst of wolves. You think you're going to accomplish the Great Commission because you've got these strategies and these skills and these gifts and these powers of persuasion? Man, the best among you is like a lamb about to be eaten by a wolf. The task I've just given to you, Jesus is telling them here, is way beyond your ability to do. Way beyond your ability to do. Harvest is plentiful. But you're being sent out like helpless lambs in the midst of hostile wolves. And by the way, Jesus emphasizes that fact even more because you look down into verse 4. And uh, the fact that they were to go out carrying no money, no sandals, and no bag... I mean, Jesus deliberately put them into the point where they were realizing every single second of the day, I am in absolute dependence on God in carrying out this mission. Absolute dependence on him. The harvest is plentiful, and yet we are as weak as endangered lambs. And so Jesus says, as you go, and as you're carrying out my saving mission that I've entrusted to you, you are quickly going to realize that you need help. So pray. Pray earnestly for me to send out more laborers into the harvest fields. In other words, don't just pray. This is not, I hope you realize this, this verse is not a verse for us to go and pray for unsaved people to get saved. This verse is a call for us to pray for saved people to go out and proclaim the gospel. To realize the truth and to be sent. In light of the reality that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, we need to beg Christ. We need to beg Christ, the Lord of this harvest field, to send out more pastors to send out more missionaries than he's been doing, to send out just more Christians into this world, into their workplaces, into their schools, into their homes and neighborhoods, just more Christians who are not afraid to introduce the people around them to this Savior named Jesus Christ.
We must pray because Christ, by the way, is the only one who can send out laborers into his harvest fields. He is the only one who can do this work. Do you realize this? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And there is nothing you and I can do about it. But pray. But pray. Christ is the only one who can send out laborers into his harvest. We can try to manipulate people, can't we? I don't know how many missions conferences I've been to that have tried to do that. You can try to guilt people. You can try to force people into doing that. But when you create laborers by that process, you'll regret ever making them in the first place. Because they'll either burn out because they were going into the ministry for the wrong reason, or they'll quickly warp ministry into a means of their own personal gain. Our harvest field here in West Liberty needs true laborers, Christ-sent laborers, laborers that are burdened by compassion for the lost and zeal for God's glory, burdened by a heartfelt realization of the truth that only Christ can impart. Only Christ can convict a soul. Only Christ can empower believers. Only Christ can send out laborers. And so we must pray. We must pray for God's Spirit to move among our assembly and open our eyes increasingly to the truth. Because as our eyes realize the eternal realities in which we live, it is then that we are done, we are more than just appointed, we are sent out into those fields as an answer to those prayers. If our efforts for evangelism must expand, we must pray. We must pray individually and as a church that we would realize first the truth. That the harvest is plentiful. There, this church, not just this church, every church in West Liberty ought to be packed out with worshipers of Jesus Christ. He owns them all. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. We ought to pray that we would realize the truth. And second, we ought to pray that we would respond to the truth by praying and going, by praying and going. Because we are few. Amen? We are weak. Amen? But we are sent. Amen? We are sent. Only he can convict, only he can empower, and only he And so that is why prayer must be a priority in our desire to expand evangelism because God alone is sovereign in sending. I understand that it's been one of the previous ambitions of Pastor Randy when he was here. It's my ambition here as well that we as a church would grow in our outreach, right? That's one of the things we want to see, to grow in our outreach. That's fantastic. Guess where it begins? Right here. In prayer. That God would cause us to realize the truth. The truth that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, and that that realization would compel us into the harvest fields to proclaim Jesus Christ to those who are lost. This is why prayer must be a priority in our desire to expand evangelism, because God alone is sovereign in sending. Next week, we're going to see from verses 21 through 24 of chapter 10 how he is sovereign in seeing 
when it comes to evangelism. You ought to pray because no one will ever go out into the harvest fields until someone prays. And you ought to pray because no one will ever respond to the laborers in those harvest fields until you're praying as well. Prayer must always accompany evangelism.